I think the one thing that I've decided to start really niching down on is how to buy your first business. There's a lot of people who talk about, oh, anyone can buy your first business. You should buy your first business. But there's not a lot of people who talk about how. And most of the time when somebody's looking at buying their first business, what do they do? They go to this buy sell or they go to some other broker. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Small Business Mentor Podcast, where we shine a light on the black holes of business growth with your host, Alan Pence. In each episode, we explore the leaps and bounds entrepreneurs make as they push their businesses beyond the 1 million mark into the realm of professional sustainable growth. Stay with us as we navigate the journey from brute force to finesse. All right, today on the podcast, we got Nick Haluski. I don't think he even needs an introduction. He's a renaissance man of X. He does just about everything. So Nick, welcome to the podcast, but give us a quick overview of all the little pots you've got your fingers on so that people know your background. Yeah, a very quick overview is my business partner and I, Chris, have our hands in a bunch of different projects. We have RV parks. We have a 3PL e-commerce company. We have a, a company that sells Bitcoin mining equipment to Bitcoin miners, which is a cool company. Uh, as well as hosting services. We have an AI healthcare company that we are incubating at the moment. In fact, the person who's running that just moved up to Boise with me, which is freaking fun. We have a home services company where we trim trees, fast tree care, and really most of our time is spent trying to control our ADHD. Sounds like it's not very successful either. Do you have some like other healthcare thing too? Yeah, so I had um, a medical billing company that I sold a year and a half ago, and then a home health and hospice that I started up and sold six months ago. So I'm actually working for the company that bought my home health and hospice company in a transitionary period of time, which has been pretty cool, pretty close down. But yeah, lots and lots of healthcare experience, which is why I, we wanted to do the start the AI healthcare. Right, so I do a podcast on AI, by the way, too. So what, do what you? is, yeah, I do one on AI and government. But what are you guys doing with AI and healthcare? All right. So in healthcare, you ever been to a doctor's office or if you've ever moved anywhere new, the first thing you do is you have to fill out paperwork. And they've gotten a little bit more sophisticated where now it's like, oh, here's an iPad or here's a link to fill out your paperwork. But there's still not portability for your records because you're essentially manually telling the physician what medications you had, what your history was. You're not able to just send a record, at least nationally or, or worldwide. There's no system in place that allows you to port your health record over. And that's as, as you as a consumer on the front end. Well, on the back end, all these clinicians who are documenting that are supposed to be talking across settings. So let's say you went to a hospital and then you went to a skilled nursing facility to rehab and then you go home and you have a nurse coming to see you and then you go back to your physician to check in because he's checking on the incision. They don't talk to each other. The way that they communicate right now is by either handwriting, faxing it and sending it over to you or taking the patient records that they've documented on and emailing it to you. And then what do you do as the healthcare provider that's receiving it? Typically you print it out and then you hand key it into your system or you just upload the PDF and then you hand key what this patient's history and physical was, you know, what, what kind of medication they're on, what was their weight six months ago, et cetera. So this issue has been described as a lack of interoperability amongst electronic health medical records. And working in healthcare, I see this firsthand. So as AI has come out, because the current iterations for artificial intelligence are large language models, which means they're not yet capable to do fifth grade level math problems, although they're getting a lot better at it. They're trained on reading, interpreting, and then with context, inferring. 
from data that they'd read. I thought there's a huge opportunity for us to be able to use either the written or documented on the computer notes from clinicians and then help fill that interoperability gap. So the first tool that we're working on right now is a tool that helps skilled nursing facilities in the admission process identify codes, essentially, that make sure that they capture as much revenue as possible on the front end, because if they're not capturing that revenue, but they're still doing the services, they're essentially giving away money for free. And it's not artificial intelligence that a lot of people talk about in the sense where it's basically a souped up control F function, right? Where it's like, you're just searching for a keyword. We've been spending a lot of time specifically, we work with Anthropic, so it has a large prompt window and the prompt itself, prompt engineering, obviously, uh, has a lot of useful context data that prompts the system as it goes in and then scans the PDFs, takes that information and spits out what the codes should be. So that's a very like long-winded explanation, but essentially it's helping those care settings. Right now we just focus on skilled nursing facilities as they're getting patient information, not lose the data in transit and only rely on a clinician to read the 700 pages worth of patient history and physical, but use a tool to say, hey, did you see these codes? You actually should be coding for these as well and taking care of them so that they don't miss out on reimbursement. Okay, so that was the thing I wasn't getting was what what was the connection between it pulls in all the information and the code. So that's got that. All right, that sounds fascinating. It's been really fun. It's just a lot of work. And then, you know, when you realize, oh, I can't train my own LLM for $1,000. So essentially what, what we're doing is just prompt engineering. And now that the windows are larger for you to empty your prompts, so you, you have enough characters to essentially, you know, upload a manual, it makes it a lot easier to not have to train your own LLM. I mean, at some point, it'd be nice to train our own LLM on proprietary data, but that's fun. Yeah, that's awesome. So going just kind of to the heart of it here, like what is it, I kind of call this, these version of my podcast, the wisdom of X. And it's like all these people I've seen on X that post and they're super smart and, and figured stuff out. So like, what are the two or three things that you think you're trying to teach people on X? It's a great question. Something I do think a lot about and something that has changed kind of over time. I think the one thing that I have decided to start really niching down on is how to buy your first business. There's a lot of people who talk about, oh, anyone can buy your first business. You should buy your first business. But there's not a lot of people who talk about how. And most of the time when, when somebody's looking at buying their first business, what do they do? They go to this buy sell or they go to some other broker website and they look at a deal that's been sitting there for six months. And they talk to a broker who really couldn't care less whether or not the deal moves. And it's good from the perspective that they start getting reps, but these aren't the best type of deals that they could be going after. Not to say you can't find a needle in the haystack, but they being the first time searchers, they just don't know where else to look. And then over time they start learning, oh, okay, I'm going to meet with this one particular broker, or I'm going to look in this one particular geography. And I just think there's a ton of opportunity for education. I've bought seven plus companies off market. I've never bought a company on market. I've sold a company on market, but I've never bought the company. So, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with what it takes to cold outreach, negotiate, find due diligence, et cetera. And so I think that's the one thing that I like talking about is, all right. So what do you tell people to do now? Well, it's a whole long process. The first thing I say is you need to be specific. Many people are like, I'm just going to buy any business. I mean, that sounds good, right? It's like, well, as long as it does $500,000 a year in profit, I don't care what business it is. Like, okay, that could work, but. If you want to be successful, you need to narrow down, like just be specific with what you're looking for. And specificity starts with where do you want to be? What market do you want to be in? Do you want to be in Kansas City? Do you want to be in Utah? Do you want to be in California? Generally speaking, where do you want to be? What kind of business do you want to operate? Do you want to do a B2B? Do you want to do B2C? Do you want to 
have something with really high skilled labor, like a medical billing and coding company, right? Where you're working with people who actually have a college degree or you like, screw those people. I want to go work in a sweaty startup. I want to work with plumbers and electricians. And like, th that's my crew. I think that's really important to identify where you feel most comfortable because where you feel most comfortable and what you're most passionate about, you'll be successful in that space. If you get into something thinking you're supposed to like, you know, a certain thing, you're probably not going to be as successful in that space. And then I would say, once you've thought about those two things, what type of business, how big do you want it to be? Is it a hundred thousand dollar a year revenue business? Is it a $5 million a year revenue business? What can you afford? How much can you afford? Do you understand sort of where your limitations are? And then from there, what's the profile of the business that you'd want to work for? Is it a seller who's getting out of the business? They've been in for 20 years. Are you looking for someone who's just gotten into trouble and you want to take over their operations? Like thinking through a lot of those things helps you formulate and articulate a good plan. And then once you have a clear idea of what you're looking for, then you go into those markets and you scrape LinkedIn or public databases like in healthcare. I bought companies because I went and looked who had a license. I found the name of those businesses, looked at their addresses, and I just started sending them notices like, hey, my name's Nick. I'm new to Boise. Would you ever be interested in selling? Here's my background. Because I was specific. Like I actually, I knew what I was looking for. And so that specificity allowed me to tailor my message to these people and then start doing some cold email and outreach. And from there, you start having conversations. You got to kiss a lot of frogs, but you start meeting with sellers who may or may not be interested. And that's when the deal flow starts coming in. So that's my, my initial approach is like, you got to be clear on what you want. It's easy to generate the leads. Okay. And you guys do, I've heard you and Chris talk a lot about scraping, data scraping. I saw Chris talk about, I mentioned this on another podcast. The first time I kind of saw him, he was talking about, oh, this very data-driven process to figure out, say you want to do home services. So the way you figure out you want to do tree services is you scrape all the names of every, you know, you look at your areas that you're looking at, you scrape all the names of the services, you get offshore talent, you know, offshore people to call in and ask for quotes. You see who answers the phone, who doesn't. You do that by area. Then you go into all the groups and see like who's posting in Facebook or, you know, or like whatever the home service kind of things are, Angie. And then you kind of do this thing where you narrow down like, oh, there's a gap or the least competitive market is tree trimming and Boise. And so I'm going to go start a business there. Yeah, there's definitely the competitive and market analysis that you have to do. Chris was talking specifically there about tree trimming, but we did the same. We were under LOI with an ABA clinic, which is applied behavioral analysis for, you know, for kids on the spectrum, which, which is a business that we really like. But what we did when we had several companies on the hook is we call around to their competitors and just ask, what's the wait like? How long does it take for us to get in? And so those cities that said like, oh, it's a six month wait period, we knew there was a lot of demand there. So that's obviously very interesting to us where there's a ton of demand, not enough supply to meet it. So there are a lot of like different ways you can do it. I mean, the, the tree trimming was one way that you mentioned. There's you know, obviously what I just mentioned with the ABA clinics, home health and hospice. I looked at how many Medicare beneficiaries there are within a certain geography versus how many home health and hospice agencies. And so that ratio told me which markets were best for me to operate in. But the market analysis is, a, is an important component of kind of deciding what you want to do. Well, I think it's a distinguisher about what you guys are posting about, because I think most people are saying... Hey, I'm going to go out like, you know, you have a bunch of people that try to source deals, right? Off market deals. And then they kind of say after a while, that's useless. Don't try to do it. 
and they end up working with brokers and they focus on a region and they get down with these brokers and try to get the best broker deals, right? That's to me, like traditionally what I hear people doing. But what you guys are doing is sort of like, it doesn't really matter whether you're starting a business, buying a business, you're basically using data to narrow down, like data that's out there available, most people aren't even looking at, to narrow down here are holes in the market, things that we think we can exploit. And it's a very thesis driven, so it's almost like a PE thesis driven way of searching. Yeah, like one of the things is we try to use publicly available data, but do back of the envelope math. So for example, when we first started looking at tree trimming, we thought, and Chris lives in Dallas. So we're like, well, let's look at Dallas. How big do we think the tree trimming market is in Dallas? I don't know. Well, there's 330 million people in the United States. So Dallas is about 2% of the you know United States population. Uh, the tree trimming industry is about $30 billion. So, you know, almost a billion dollars between 600 and a billion dollars. And then later we went and did some research and turns out, you know, there's people who've done analysis and that's about the size of the tree trimmer market, but it's about getting to a good number. It doesn't necessarily have to be the perfect number. You guys are doing McKinsey case study questions, right? I mean, that's essentially what they'd ask you how many manhole covers there are in New York. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's funny. Yeah, it's literally what you guys are doing. That's what I, I mean, it just stood out to me. I was like, oh my God, of course you should do this. And like, to be honest, in some ways it, it probably, it could lead you down. I mean, when, when, and the end of that thing with Chris was like, he was saying, and you can just go to like the Home Depot and find a bunch of guys Now maybe tree trimming is a little more complicated. I don't know, but like for a lot of construction and normal stuff, there are a bunch of guys waiting around the Home Depot or wherever it is in your town that are crews, right? And they're basically everybody's hiring subcontracted crews. You don't even need to go buy a business. You can just go spin it up and uh, do the right kind of Google ads and the right kind of posting and, and the neighborhood groups and you got a business. Chris and I talk a lot about asymmetric bets where we're like, okay, let's try to make this as, as asymmetric of a bet as possible. But one of the things that we do in the process is we do test our theories. Uh, I'll give you an example. We wanted to buy an RV park in Waco, Texas, and the rents were like $150 per pad. And we were like, that's got to be low, right? Yeah, it's got to be low. And so what did, what did we do? What would you have done? You call around to some of the other parks and you're like, what are your rents? And they gave us some decent information, but it was like, okay, maybe this park sucks. Maybe who, who knows? Maybe there's, there's something else. Okay. That's one data point for us to say 150 is not the market rate. Maybe it's around 300. And this is what I love about Chris. And Chris was like, I know exactly what I'll do. I'll go to Facebook marketplace. So he places two ads for $400 for that mobile home park and directs all the calls to his cell phone. And within three days, we've got like six leads of people who are like, I'm really interested in that park. Right. So it validated to us, okay, yeah, market rate's not even 300 it's like $400. So we we bought that park. It was a small park, it was like 20 pads. We bought that park, and within a month, we raised rents from $150 to the average of $400, and it's worth you know three times as much as it was. I'm just telling you, that seems simple. Like when you say it, it's just like, oh, of course, that's what I did. But it's like next level stuff. Like nobody is doing this. Like you took out Facebook ads on a park you didn't own that you were looking at buying, to figure out the demand and then went and bought it afterwards. I mean, come on, this is like, no one does this. That's Chris. That's my tip of the hat to Chris is he's, he's definitely been, he's, he's more of the ask for forgiveness than permission type. We did this with the mining syndicate company that we have. He ended up getting banned, I think from eBay at some point, but he was like, he was posting, Hey, we'll host your miners for five cents. And then people would respond and he'd be like, Oh, do you have miners right now? Oh, no, I don't have miners right now. And it would turn into a sale. So it's like, 
He was just creating ways to funnel people to us. And that's been part of our thesis is like, how do we leverage what we've learned on Reddit and Twitter in particular to launch these businesses? Because every, everything that we've launched has been off of either Reddit or Twitter. Really? Okay. So tell me more about that. Let's talk about, so you're kind of doing, in a way you're kind of doing like content built businesses. Is that, is that, or how do you describe that? Yes. Before we knew what it was called. Yes. And I say we very loosely, this is like Chris's baby, but Chris has been active on Reddit and Twitter for a long time. Reddit in particular, he just learned what goes viral and there are different types of people on different platforms. So Reddit has very hardcore engaged people for their particular subreddits. And if you post something on there and they like it, they're going to do what? They upload it, right? So it's community-driven upvoting of certain things. Twitter's different. Twitter's, you've got to figure out the algorithm that pushes a post over time. And so your content strategy is not the same. Twitter is about compounding. You've got to, over a long period of time, post consistent, good content. And over time, you will compound. You see that with Chris's growth. You see that with my growth, even over the last six months. Reddit is different. Reddit, you can write. And as long as it resonates with a few people, then it starts to pick up steam. There's no algorithm that says, ooh, I like you. I'm going to push you because you're already grouped into these subgroups. Whereas Twitter, eventually, they group you through the algorithm. Reddit is, is self-selected. So anyways, that's all like a long preamble to whenever we'll test things, we'll go and find the, the Reddit subreddit and test it on there. So we post ads. Uh, in the mining community on Reddit. We would post ads on um, the entrepreneur community when we were looking at starting an agency like Support Shepherd. And you just see what takes off and what doesn't. So in that case, you're testing business ideas and saying, I'm using this as a way to validate this thesis. Reddit's much more of a testing of an idea. You're not trying to build an audience that you can then... No. Right. Because like, you know, like say like Support Shepherd with Nick and stuff he would i guess his thing is like i can put it out i have distribution essentially right because i have all these followers so i can build a business off of it and it's like on reddit it sounds like you've got to like hey i can get data i might be able to push some people one day because that something hits but you don't really have distribution unless uh, each each message has distribution yeah it's easier on reddit to target the exact people that you want to hear from than it is on twitter so it's a focus group. It's a focus, exactly. You guys are doing modern like market research focus groups on. I've never articulated it that way, but that's exactly what it is, right? It's like Reddit, I can go to exactly the people who I want to hear from, post it, they get feedback. Twitter is the distribution channel where it's like, okay, we know it's successful. Let's go ahead and leverage the distribution. And that's what's interesting about Huber is I feel like there are two types of successful accounts on Twitter. There's the one type, which is Gurdley, who had outside success and then has leveraged that into an audience. And then you've got Huber, who's had audience success and has now leveraged that into real-world success. I'm not saying he wasn't successful outside of Twitter, but the magnitude of his success has really been because of his Twitter following, not, not the other way around. So Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. I hadn't thought about that difference. Yeah, and I, I mean, he did it live, right? He was like writing about deals and getting that kind of recognition. That's fascinating. So, so would you say that's like the core thesis of what you guys are doing? Yeah, the core thesis for us is to find businesses that we can leverage those growth hacking, if you will, channels for us. So you guys are really taking growth hacking to boring businesses. I think I might have just come up with your marketing slogan there, Nick. You're taking the SaaS like startup kind of thing over to sweaty startups. And if Nick listens, I'm sorry, he and I got into it a little bit on X the other week. I have to apologize. He's a very interesting character. He's polarizing. 
I love him. The way he's built his audience and the way he's built his business, it's admirable. I love watching it because it's like, what is he? I've seen what he's doing with it. At some point, it will go to another level where like even what he's done so far won't be worth it to him. And then I wonder what he does. And that's why I'm watching like Girdley. I still don't understand what Girdley's trying to construct at this point. It'll be interesting to see because he's kind of already successful. So like, where is he taking it? What's the goal of it? I got to get him on the pod to hear him. What do you have to say? And here's my thesis. I think there are three reasons that you want to be on Twitter. You either want to be a lurker, so you want to learn and meet new people, and but you don't really want to post. You just want to be there to absorb. You want to be famous or you want to grow a business. I think Gurdley's more of the second. Yeah, I mean, to your point, there's no reason he needs to be on Twitter. None of his businesses even fit his distribution channel. So why is he spending so much time on it? Now, he started going bigger on YouTube, which I think is a much better... Oh, has he? I haven't tried... Oh, well, I guess with the acquisitions anonymous. Yeah, he's and he's putting out some individual videos, but unless he's going to pivot this year to full business guru, I'm with you. I, I, I just think he likes to have the following and he likes to hear from people. Yeah, I think, like, look, what can a rich person do? What's left except for to increase your status? And we're all status-seeking creatures. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm here partially for status too, right? And it's good. But, you know, I think that's all you can really get out of it at a certain point. And it's really interesting to see all these guys like Shane Burry and Sam Parr and Girdley and Nick. And they're kind of like coming together in some ways or Cody Sanchez. And like some of them, I feel like it's very interesting. So we got off on this subject, but, but uh, oh, we'll just keep going on the gurus because I know you make fun of gurus and I like to too. But it's like... I also, the thing I find that kind of, I don't know if I don't like, I guess I don't like it, right? Is they start off in a niche where like, they're really good at telling you about something and it's super interesting and you learn it and you watch them do it. And then they become like lifestyle gurus. So I see like Cody Sanchez kind of gets into this and like others. And it's like, first of all, I don't think you know that much about telling people how to live their lives. Cause like, you're an N of one and like, and you're attributing X success to Y trait or habit. Like, I don't think you really know that. And it's not interesting. So the content starts getting really watered down at that level. And so I'm like, I guess in my journey so far, now who knows, I'll be tempted later on. I just feel like sticking to like the audience I'm trying to create. That's what I want. I don't really want to be like some generic celebrity i don't know what your reaction to that is but i just feel like they all go through this thing where i stop reading their content after 150,000 followers i mean the reason you stop reading their content is because they're not writing it anymore they have a ghostwriter or there's somebody else doing it right and the reason that content was interesting before is because they actually put time and energy and effort into sort of distilling the way that they thought about things or maybe they were funny or maybe they had different frameworks whatever and now it's just what a generic gobbledygook i think that's why you probably stop following them I'm fascinated by gurus. I, I actually don't hate them. I love making fun of them, but think there's this massive need for people who want to get into business and want to be successful. And there's not another avenue for them other than paying money to Cody Sanchez or Chris Crone or any of these other gurus that are popping up, Grant Cardone, because people maybe like you and I are like, I don't know, that seems a little skeezy. I don't know. I don't want to come off as weird. Well, where else are they going to go? They want the knowledge they want they're like they're hungering to figure out how they buy their first business how they run it well how they sell how they grow and these are the people who've decided to put out the content that they can consume i mean cody sanchez has 1200 people in her mastermind that pay like ten thousand dollars a year to be a part of it 
So how much of this is just aspirational lifestyle marketing? And how much of it is like, how many of these people are actually going to go and buy a business and be successful? Like, I, I think it's a very small percentage. I think these are mostly people who, and, and I'm not saying, hey, selling, Cody's can sell that. That's fine. And the people buy it. I mean, they're buying a service they want. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it just feels like it's all like aspirational lifestyle marketing, not like real business stuff. You're saying Cody's marketing is aspirational lifestyle. Well, I don't want to name her, but I do feel like I haven't done her stuff. So like, I can't hundred percent say, but it just feels like that's sort of what it gets to at these large things where it's like, I'm going to do this mastermind on blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, you're marketing to such a huge group of people. You know, most of them are never going to do it. I think it's going to be just like any other distribution curve. There are the tails and it's probably one to 2% that actually consume their content and are very successful doing it. But if I'm in her shoes, I don't know how else, if you keep getting more and more people reaching out to you because they want to learn from you, how else are you supposed to distinguish who's serious and who's not? And the, the way that you do it is by charging more. Okay, well, if you're serious about starting a business, pay me 10 grand. I don't know that those people are going to be any more successful, but it's at least a filtering mechanism for her to control her time. I don't like a ton of the clickbaity stuff. Like Nick, I don't know, maybe I'll morph into him someday. He goes like very far with, if you're a grown man and have an Instagram account, you're cheating on your wife. I'm going to post that. I just laugh at that stuff. It's hilarious. No, it's, it's funny, right? But he knows that it drives engagement and he knows he's got now a top of funnel, more eyeballs are seeing it and the people that he wants to see it eventually are funneling down to him. And that's fine as a strategy. Um, that's where it's easy to make fun of. I even think like the Chris Crowns of the world who, and he, he has this clip where he's like, I don't get sick. Do you know why? What's the first thing people say to you when they start feeling sick? I think I'm getting sick. So when I start feeling that way, I change my mindset. And guess what? I haven't gotten sick in 10 years. And you're like, okay, does he actually believe that? Or does she really tell you that? You know who else tells me that though? My wife. So I didn't really need to beg her to tell me. Oh yeah, she totally believes it's mental. Yeah. Okay, well, her and Chris Cronin get along great. But what I'm saying is that like, I do think there's like this portion of them that they market because now that has become their business. Cody's business is being a guru. Right, exactly. And I gave you your marketing slogan, but you just taught me about capitalism. So it's like, oh, more people want your stuff. So you raise your prices, right? So I get it. I guess I still, as a person at just read sub 2000 followers, I'm like a little sniping person on their heels saying, oh, how gross they're doing selling courses. And, but whatever, but people want them, right? So who cares? Well, and that's where I, I've gotten, I love teaching. I freaking, I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. I always thought if I had a big exit, I want to be a college professor. And now I've looked into becoming a college professor and it's like, it takes forever to even just get an adjunct. And anyways, my ADD is like, I don't have enough time for that. But I'm like, I'm fascinated by the, like the Cody Sanchez model because there are a lot of people who want that knowledge. And so I think, could I do that? Could I help people buy their first business? Like, can you do it in a way where you're not coming out across as, sleazy or used car salesman. And I think there's, I do think there's a way to do it, but I, I think that would be really cool. Build a community of people who are actually trying to get better. And yeah, maybe 90% of them never actually buy a business, but for the 10% who do, the stuff you're teaching them is life-changing. Yeah. No, and I think it's a good point. And what I, you know, my only recommendation on that path, which I giving myself advice here is you guys have like a really great angle, this like content driven whatever, you know, what did you call it? Growth hacking for boring businesses, right? I think that that's an awesome angle and it's something valuable and it's something different. And so like the fact that you're building something around that a hundred percent, it's just like when you get to the top of that set of people, like, and you guys start talking about 
multifamily syndications because you want to be Grant Cardone, then I'm like, all right, you're three times better than me, according to Twitter. Isn't that so weird about Twitter? It's so freaking weird to me where it's like, there will be guys who are asking other people for advice. It's like, hey, how did you do this deal? Can you help me? And then I go click on their profiles and the person being asked for advice is like a 22 year old with 25,000 followers that has no experience. And the guy asking is like 50, has owned multiple businesses. And I'm like, it's just the number next to his name, man. You're like, you, you don't know that he actually has any real value or experience. It's true. Although I would have to say I have met and interacted with multiple people of all ages, younger like you guys and older like me, and like been amazed at some of the knowledge, like just, just that growth hacking for boring businesses. Like I was just like, they figured out something I've never thought of before. And it's so obvious, like when you hear it, but no one done it. So I totally think that there is something to it in the sense of like, and I get it. There's like, if you're really good, you have to do it. You don't just get those followers right away. You got to do it all the time. And so like, there are really good people that don't have any followers, but a lot of the people with good, a lot of followers are really good. I mean, they are smart. Agreed. 100% agree. Maybe I didn't articulate it in the best way. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. This Chris had had this guy posting on all his, commenting on all his posts frequently. And Chris was like, I don't know who this guy is. He's kind of cringe. And he'd been DMing Chris. Hey, hey, can we talk? I wanted to talk to you about this. What do you think about this? And Chris was like, I saw how many followers he had and I kind of just blew it off. Months later, he gets like a, a DM from somebody, Fort Worth Chris, like one, another one of these big accounts. And like, hey, my buddy so-and-so has been trying to get a hold of you. Could you just give him a few minutes? He's a really good guy. I've known him for a long time. And so Chris was like, okay, as a favor to this guy, I'll do it. Ends up talking to him and turns out this guy is managing hundreds of millions of dollars hyper successfuls on multiple businesses and had been wanting to work with Chris in some capacity, but Chris had never given him the time of day because he just didn't have the followers on his account, right? That's more of what I'm highlighting is this like social currency that we assign to people just because they have a certain number of followers is crazy. Right. It's kind of ridiculous. And it is true that like half the lurkers are probably, you know, not half, but there are a bunch of lurkers who are like on $300 million businesses. They just don't post on X, right? Always got to look for the little people and what they can provide Nick. Just on your ascent, just always remember that. Okay. Well, I was a lurker for like 10 years before I started. Were you? Oh yeah. Okay. So let's get into a little bit about, can we talk about the growth group? Is that fair? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Nick and a, a group of other guys formed a group to help, you know, do best practices, help each other grow. And so why don't, why don't you describe like what you guys did and what it's turned into? All right, so I've been working for 10 plus years and I've seen Chris and he and I have been best friends for almost 20 years. I've seen him grow two Twitter accounts now to 60,000 followers. It's just him, Chris Kerner. He doesn't like people to know. So he grew that account. He launched a business with McAfee and then... He had all these crypto bros that were following him. And then when crypto crashed, he lost engagement. And he was just like, I can't figure out how to get it back. So someone told him to start a new account. So he started a new account. And this is his new account. Anyways, so I'd seen Chris do it. And I'd always thought, I could do that. If I had time, I could do that. And I, you know, just always been busy. And when I finally sold my second company last year, I was like, all right, let's put up or shut up time. I, I have the time. I want to see if I can do this. I just decided I'm going to post every single day. And I'm going to try to get better. And I know I'm going to suck for a long time and I still suck, but I know I'm going to get better every single day. And as I started that process, I started looking out for other people who were posting regularly and I could tell we're trying to grow on Twitter. So I reached out to Cole. I reached out to Parker. I reached out to Mike. I'm like, Hey, I'm seeing you're growing. Do you want to like start this growth group with me where we just text each other and say what we're seeing? How's your post go? Or, Hey, take a look at my post. What do you think of this thought? 
And so that was around like 200 followers that we started just interacting. And it's morphed over time from like this, hey, what do you think of my post? To, hey, I got to fire this guy today. What do you guys think? How should I approach it? Or, hey, I'm having a hard time with my kids. I mean, you built yourself a little EO forum there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, so that was like my epiphany to this was like, Twitter's fantastic. And if I could find other growth minded, hyper successful, or at least focused people, that'd be a really cool group to continue to expand. So we talked about it and we're like, I wonder if we could do this again. I'm going to post and just say, hey, we did this with us. I've created some tips and tricks. Does anybody want to try this with us? And we said, we have five slots and like 180 people messaged us. We were like, oh crap, that's like way more than what we wanted. So the more we talked about it, we thought, is there a way we could try to do something with everybody? And so we started this growth madness where it's essentially a competition for the next three months just to get people bought in and excited, but organized into smaller pods. So it'll be pods of five to seven people. We have a Slack group, Slack channel. And this week we'll be letting people know kind of who their pods are. And the pods hopefully will function the way that, that our conversations function is like, hey, what do you think of this post? Guys, why do you think this didn't work well? And my hope is that it morphs into something else and that these relationships are able to be expanded on rather than just about Twitter growth. But yeah, that's what we started. That's what we launched it. We're putting $5,000 into it as like some prizes. Yeah, who's funding? Are you guys all funding it together? We just thought it would be really fun. We talked about charging for it up front. We're like, well, let's try it this first year. And if we do it another year, we can get people to buy in. I mean, remember Cody Sanchez, you got too many people. And what did she do? She just raised her prices, right? Well, and part of this is an experiment for me is because I'm like, okay, I like this stuff. I love community. Did we turn this into a real community, right? Like, could we actually create a really good experience where people are excited about it? And then if we get to the point where they're like, it's two months, right? It's time bound. So this isn't in perpetuity. We can, we'll, we'll evaluate it and say, okay, in order to keep doing this, we've got to charge because we got to have a community manager. We got to do all these other things. Or does it just run its course and it was a fun one-time thing and we do it next year? So for me, it's kind of a test. Well, credit to you guys for organizing that. I mean, that's awesome. I'm participating in it. It's actually been really cool. I've been really surprised. There's a lot of people who are collaborating with each other. We have a couple different channels. They're posting and getting feedback. We haven't even broken up into pods yet. It's great that you guys did it. I do think there's something there. Is everyone like SMB pretty much? Or are there people coming in from real estate? Or are there people? I would say 50% SMB, another 30% real estate, and then probably just 20% randoms. It'll be interesting to see what it becomes, because I do think there's a community there that wants more. We exchange notes about events, and like I think in some ways, like Brent Bishore and the other guys at Permanent Equity kind of built this Main Street Summit. I think he's built like, you know, that's a lot of those people were there, and that's really cool. It was really cool to meet people in person. So I do think if you can create a more virtual community, it's great. And that's what I'm trying to balance is like, Twitter has such an amazing community, and people who act, like genuinely want to connect and interact but there's not like Facebook has good Facebook groups and you can post different things. There's not as great of a functionality on Twitter for what, for that type of community building. And so I'm like, can we do this? Like, can we create our own little SMB community that would, that would foster these types of conversations and then eventually turn into these masterminds? Like that, that's my dream. That would be amazing. Uh, and this is like the first shot to see if there's, there's anything there. So extending from the Twitter thing, I mean, you and Chris and you guys have obviously constructed this very odd life and setup, right? I don't even know how many companies you own. Like, I would have to go back and like do like analysis to figure out. So talk a little bit about how you manage all this stuff, what your goal is. Like, is it like a personal hold co? Is that what you've got? How do you think about it? So I will merge this with my Twitter philosophy as well. I have three objectives with Twitter. I want to build a personal brand. I want to journal for my kids. I want to meet cool people. I think building a personal brand will provide me opportunities. 
I suck at journaling, but I want my kids to know what I was like as they were growing up. And so, you know, someday they feed my stuff through an LOM and they can have a conversation with their dad. And then I, I just like meeting cool people. So that's why I'm, I'm on Twitter right now. And that's why I'm trying to grow. It's a similar philosophy with what Chris and I are doing. We love people and we love ideas. And so we're like, how could we continue to meet cool people, to have fun with the experiences that we have, to be selective about what we do and to test these ideas that we have on a regular basis? Well, let's, let's try to buy things and partner with people. That's what we've done. I don't have a number. Uh, you know, some people are like very clear. I want to be a billionaire. I want to have a hundred, whatever their number is. Um, for me, it's just about, do I continue to have the freedom to choose what I do? That's been really cool for me. I've met people who are like, I want to be a billionaire. I just think, do you understand how much time and effort and sacrifice that would take? I have no desire for that. So getting onto this number, I, I think there is no number. I think it's a fictitious idea that people who want to retire think about. And of course there's goals, right? You're like, if you're at 1 million, you want to be a five, you're five, you want to be a 10, 10, you want to be a 25, right? And that's fine. And I do, I do that too. But once you get to the number, there's just another number. That's all there is. It's like my friend told me about becoming a law firm partner. Hey, it's like a pie eating contest where the reward is more pie. So like you get to 25, it's like, Hey, I want more pie. So I don't think that that really has much relevance to me. I think there is a number probably, and I've hit it where I wouldn't do anything to make more money that wasn't fun and cool. And I think that there's no like limit to like, oh, I'm going to stop doing it because I already have enough money. I just, I do this for fun and like, it's part of my life. I'd probably die if I didn't do it. I'm in the same boat. That's where we are just to continue to have. And so you guys have actually set up co-founders, right? Is that, you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. Last year we papered everything officially have a company, co-founders. We have different entities that have different operators. We're trying to grow up, be adults. Uh, we're still figuring our way around things, but co-founders holds an equity piece in every business that we do together. And then depending on whether or not one of us is having an outsized role in that business, then one of us will get a little bit more personal equity in that holding company. So there's kind of some nuances there, but really the idea is to have a vehicle where Chris and I can work together in and experiment on for the rest of our lives. Do you guys have any like back office support structure for that yet? Or is it just kind of like an entity that's it's there? We're in the process of that. I think that's the key because I'm like struggling. I have like all these things. So this is where I, going back to the X thing and like, and this podcast is about me. Let's do it. I want to hear. So I've got all these things that I want to spin up that I don't want to run, right? You know, I want to be a part of, but I see X as this force multiplier, right? Where I can find good people that can help you. And that's what Nick did, obviously, and, and others. And then create this like back office infrastructure so that like when you want to do something, you just remove a lot of the friction. Like I have this idea right now where I do, I'm doing the small business mentor thing, but there's not really good content about my main business that I grew up with was in government contracting consulting. But there's very little content out there for searchers about this and how to buy and sell these at a small small level, right? And there's all sorts of weird issues with like different socioeconomic set-asides and how you get around them and what, what you should take and not take. And there's like a whole like way of growing these businesses that it's like a little factory conveyor belt that I figured out over a year. So I'm like, I want to get this content out there. And I've had four searchers now in the last month approach me. Um, they're starting to look at these businesses, I think, because tech is kind of dead. But they found some post I did three years ago on SearchFunder, and they're coming to me. I'm like, there is no content if that's what you're, that's how you're finding me, right? So I thought like, hey, I want to spin up something here where I get the content out. There's some basic stuff that can be kind of evergreen. 
And then I'm thinking like, all right, what do I do with this, right? When I get searchers coming to me, yeah, I can invest in their deals, but like, how do I turn this into a business? And that's sort of what I want to be able to do with X is like, hey, who are people out there that have ideas? Or like, I need, I want to turn this into a brokerage. So who has brokerage experience that I could plug in here? Or I want to turn this into a search fund. So how do I, who can help me figure out how to set up a search fund and um, recruit the people? That's what I think is really cool about the the platform. Well, I also think you have an awesome opportunity for creating and selling content, a course. No, don't make me a course seller, Nick. I can't. Okay, I'll use a different word. A class. No, but but seriously, when you think about how many years have you been working in government services or contract? I mean, 25, 25, something like that. Okay. If you took 25 years worth of experience and turned it into a six-hour class, let's call it, it's worth a lot of money. And if a searcher went and there's no other content out there and they're coming to you, how do you leverage yourself? You can't invest in necessarily every single deal, nor do you want to invest in every single deal. But the deals may still get done, right? They may still need that content. You can give it away for free. That's, there's nothing wrong with that either. But if you look at a way to, to monetize what you're doing, I don't think there's anything wrong with charging for that. But, but to your point, then it's like, all right, in five years, you start talking about you know how to grow a YouTube channel for kids. It's like, all right, he's gone the guru route. Like he's, you know what I mean? Like, uh-oh, he drank too much guru juice. That's interesting. I think that what we're seeing is this movement toward a content-driven business. And they're going to be like a bunch of different models that come out of that. And it's going to be the suite of like, I'm going to spin up a service business. I'm going to have a class. I'm going to have this. I'm, I think there's starting to be an emerging playbook for the moves you make. Yeah, definitely. And for somebody like you who is in an industry that hasn't currently been staked out, you know, obviously there's an opportunity to establish yourself as an expert within that community. And then what you want to do with it is totally up to you. Do you just want to position yourself to invest? Do you want to make money off of your content? Do you want to own the businesses yourselves? Like, the, the, you know, there's a host of options that you can kind of run there. So if anybody listening to this has course experience, class experience, please, please reach out. Yeah. Class certificate experience. Yes. I'm going to give you a certificate in GovCon acquisition. That's the way around it is they're not courses. You're selling certificates now. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, like going from different industry to industry, like how people are doing this. Like the other thing I've just invested in is helping a couple of guys buy a metal fab facility up in mass. This business is incredible. So I, but I'm plugging them in with like Reg and Josh Schultz online and I want to get them, I'm, we were talking about this get together, right? So I'm actually going to try to set some time to just go out and see those guys. But it's really fascinating. I think there's a huge opportunity for Reg and Josh, like to create the next generation of manufacturers who are all going to network together and learn how to run these businesses better. I mean, what my buddies have figured out in just like two months is incredible. And like, they just had a software vendor in the other day to this pricing. It was like, oh my God, you are the guys I'm trying to sell to, right? Because this is a better way to do it. And all the old guys won't buy it because they're just stuck in their ways. And so I think there's just this like massive opportunity to create content communities around how to buy and run these businesses in like the modern way, better way. This is like what I struggle with is because like if I'm looking at you, I would just be like, hey, Reg and Josh, don't even worry about a community. I just want to help partner with you to get the content out there so that these people can learn how to run these businesses, right? And obviously you have to pay for your time or you have to pay for a group manager. There are resources that you have to spend in order to make the community worthwhile. But think about the value that that community is going to create not just in the people's lives who are running those manufacturing facilities, but for everybody else downstream, for their employees, for the, the products that they're able to take to market, onshoring. For me, that's the rub because I'm like, I don't want to feel gross for creating a community 
I talked to my buddy yesterday about how one of the things they're thinking about doing is buying a couple of others, cross-training on the same machine so that they can distribute work more efficiently across the other facilities and like their throughput. It was a long detailed thing, but like it was basically like ways to use acquisitions to manage throughput better and like pricing gets done centrally and then you can just shoot it out to whoever has capacity in, in your group, right? And Reg like basically tweeted the same thing out the next day. I was like, oh my God, like these guys are figuring out some of the same stuff and everyone needs to know this, right? So how do you turn this into something without it feeling gross? I think if you just, I mean, you're going to get haters, but you have to decide, like, I'm going to go all in on creating experiences and communities, right? Like, like you said, it's going to niche down. You could have conferences that are just onshore manufacturing conferences that you host. And, you know, if you're playing that central role of connector to all these people. It is interesting. I mean, we're live uh, creating a business here. I think I will publish it because I don't, maybe people will reach out and yeah, I think people reach out and like want to know about it. Luckily, I'm secure enough in myself and like I'm at the point where I'm like, this is just kind of who I am. I know I'm not skeezy, but you still have that piece in your back of your mind. You're like, ah, I think there's a way to do it. Look, if Nick did a mastermind on learning how to run, do deals and buy uh, self-storage or how to grow on Twitter. 100%. It's just when it gets into this, like, really general, like, there's something there. It's like the old thing is like, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. It's sort of like that, you know, it's like this, there's something about that where it's just like, there's a feel, like, is it genuine or is it just like you try to make a quick buck? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe we're all like little school marks, like all worried about something that we shouldn't be worried about. And they're going to be some haters out there. No, it's because you sit in this position that I do it too, where you make fun of these people for a long time and then you start like, Actually, what they're doing has some usefulness. And then you're like, crap, how do I? You're like two legs good, four legs bad. I don't want to be a hypocrite, but yeah. Actually, when I tweet, I say like, I don't think, I, it really annoys me when people do this, but I'm also a hypocrite, so I will probably do it. Just have to keep that in mind. Well, Nick, I know I've kept you so long and you've already given me like two business ideas. I mean, I did help you with the marketing, so I feel like I gave a little value back. I got to interview you next time. Yeah, man. Come on, you got to, do you have a podcast? No, I just got to like, I got to do one. No, I think we need to spin one up on growth hacking for sweaty startups. I don't know how to do it, but I'd love to be on the podcast. Well, it's great to have you on and thanks so much. And we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Small Business Mentor Podcast brought to you by Alan Pence. For more insights on how to navigate your business through its black holes, visit at apence on X. Don't forget to search for Small Business Mentor in your podcast app to subscribe. Thank you for joining us and here's to your next leap in business growth.